verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon this service today. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored in all that's said and done. Control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray for your mercy and your grace and your help. Lord, please work. Draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that this would strengthen us and we would see the wonders of your salvation, Lord, and see what you have done in order to purchase us and what you've given us. And Lord, for those who are here who have never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction, for that drawing, that even today uh, those would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, the middle of the first missionary journey right now, Paul and Barnabas, called of God and sent by the church in Antioch, they're in Syria, they headed out, they get into Cyprus, and they saw God do some amazing things there, but not without great opposition. They saw the governor of that province, of that island, converted unto Christ. From there, they headed to the mainland, they got into Pamphylia, into Perga, it was there we believe that Paul was pretty sick. Um, based on some text in the book of Galatians. We don't see him preaching there, uh, but it's very likely he was very sick at that time. He heads out of, of Perga, and he heads on a very treacherous journey up into Antioch of Pisidia. Now, he's in the Galatia area. The churches he's getting ready to establish are the same churches that Paul later on would write the church of Galatians to. Pamphylia, um, Pisidia, these are, all reg- these are all basically territories of the region of Galatia. And he's heading into what would not the capital of it, but the administrati- ad- administrative capital of it. And Pisidia had a large Jewish population. And so Paul, as was his custom, he gets into Pisidia on the Sabbath day, he heads right to the synagogue. And as was custom, they went through their normal procedure. We covered that back several sermons ago. It gets to the point of the time of the teaching and the preaching, and they asked Paul to preach, which was also common when they had, a, when they had somebody, in, somebody present that was a rabbi, that was an instructor, they would often allow him to do the speaking of that day. So Paul's standing up, and what he does first, he does two things that, that I've covered the last several weeks before this message. Was he gives them a reason to listen to him, and then he gives them a reason to believe what he is saying. Key things that we need to do when we are giving out the gospel. He doesn't start right with Christ. He very well knew that would just put up a wall immediately. He's going to use some reason. He's going to use some deductive reasoning to allow, to draw them to a place that when he does mention the name of Christ, they will listen to him. So he starts off with the history of the nation of Israel. And God's dealing with them, God's sovereignty in his hand in that nation. All of it pointing to the Messiah. He gets to King David. And how the Messiah would come through him. And from there, he changes from past to prophecy in his message. Showing how that in Jesus Christ, 
He fulfilled all these prophecies, especially he concentrated on two areas, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Why is that? Because they, they all knew of Christ. They had heard of him. Many had traveled to Jerusalem during the, during the, when it was mandatory by law, uh, during Christ's three years ministry. They knew he, he was well known. And so they were well aware of this man, Jesus Christ. But they knew he died. They crucified him. So he has to cover, well, if he's the Messiah, why did he die? And he gets into Bible prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures. They would believe in showing you, listen, we misunderstood. This is exactly what should have happened. That he had to die. He had to suffer. And he goes through all those verses in the Old Testament that were demonstrating uh, 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 what would happen on the cross with the Messiah. And then he got into the resurrection itself. And now we get into our text today. He has their attention. He has given them a reason to listen, a reason to believe. But they would have a great question right now. All right, Paul, let's say you're right. So far you have our attention, but then what we don't understand is if he was the Messiah, then what did he do? Because what were they expecting the Messiah to do? Establish a kingdom. It didn't happen. Rome is still in control. No kingdom has been established. So he has to address that. So if he is the Messiah, then what did he accomplish as the Messiah? He's getting ready to tell them far greater than what we ever imagined is what he accomplished. They had expectations or things they believed. They had presuppositions about what would happen when the Messiah arrived and none of those took place. So what then did he do? Why was he here if not to establish a kingdom? It is true. No kingdom was set up. But what he did do was make the greatest kingdom in the universe accessible to all men. He did a work much more than just establishing some earthly kingdom. He provided an escape from an eternal judgment for all of mankind. So Paul will answer the two key things the Messiah did when he was here through his death and resurrection. And that is, number one, provide forgiveness. And number two, provide justification. And then he finishes with a petrifying warning that they had better heed. And again, the truth is, Christ did so much more than what they ever expected in their own teaching. Number one, let's look at this. He provides forgiveness of sins. Look at verse number 38. He, he has let them know uh, in this sermon that Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah, that he had to die, that he was resurrected. And right after he covers the resurrection, he says this. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren... That through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. This is just a tad important. The forgiveness of sins. Your sin problem must be dealt with. There is no more important issue in your life than you dealing with your sin. And the consequences of it. The truth is, in our day, most never realize that. The truth is, in our day right now, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, even a churchgoer, I would guess this is not a high on your list. Concern and sorrow over sin. What am I going to do with my sin? That's not prevalent in man's thinking today. Not at all. 
The devil has done a great job. Now, I've covered this in a different aspect, but look at it from this angle today. The devil has done a great job in the last 80 to 100 years at getting the Western world to believe, especially America, because we were key for the gospel for the world. They're getting America to accept that morality is relative and not absolute. We saw the consequences of it. You know, basically it comes down to this. You know, it's, it's, the devil wanted man to believe that your morality was relative, that there is no absolute truth, there is no God, basically. And that morality can change as cultures develop. And we saw where that has taken us, that philosophy. Today where people call evil good and good evil. You don't get to choose your own morality. There is a God. There is a creator. What's true is true. And what's right is right. Morality is not relative. It is the creator who decides morality. So that I have covered. But here's another very important angle when this culture adapted to that philosophy that I don't think we think about too much. A dangerous aspect of this philosophy And that is, through it, you then minimize sin and the consequences of it. You're no longer thinking about the weight and burden that sin has on you. It's now minimized in your mind. Morality is relative. Most even believing that sin itself is just a construct of the church. Ridiculous. You don't see sorrow and weeping over sin. This is one reason why the Bible stresses that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because with that fear become, uh, uh, comes this, this feeling, this weight of your sin and you needing to deal with it. And it's not until you feel the full weight of your sin that you will seek for salvation. This is why we have so many false converts today. So many people have prayed a prayer, but there was no genuine conviction on their heart. There was no weight of their sin that was even present. They thought, what, I just got to say some words to go to heaven? No, that is not salvation, my friend. It is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's when you really see the weight of your sin and you come to Him in faith that He will save you. But the devil, through this philosophy, has also angled it so we minimize sin. Now, understand this. This will grab you for verse 38. This is important. Israel, especially in this day, did not have that problem. They felt the weight of their sin. They understood the consequences of their sin. So when Paul stands up to preach, through this man is the forgiveness of all sin. Oh, he had their attention. What? I I mean, think about this. Really, when it comes to the Jewish life, the Jewish person, they had three predominant theological issues that dominated their thinking. First, was the belief, and it was true, of God's active, sovereign hand in their nation and in their history leading to the Messiah. He's already covered that. A second predominant belief, if you were a Jewish person, was God's future plan for the nation of Israel in regards to the Messiah, the coming kingdom. He's covered that. 
But they had a third one that was on the mind of every Jewish person every single day. And that is the weight of their sin. I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. Again, so when Paul says in verse 38 that through this man is the forgiveness of sin, it is huge in their mind. Not like us today because we minimize sin and the consequences of it. We don't feel the weight of it. But this is the thing that had weighed them down and weighed them down. And now this man is proclaiming this is the way of forgiveness. I need you to see how profound this would be, this statement would be to a Jewish person who is sitting in that synagogue in Pisidia. Again, we live in a day where we think so little of our sin. The only way it seems people today think about their sin is trying to proclaim what they are doing is not sin. It is. You, you can think of it even in churches, even in good churches. We're seeing a direction and a movement trying to see how close we can get to the world. Trying to become more worldly and justified. You don't have a scripture and verse on that. Even though you know it's the opposite of sanctification. It's the opposite of holiness. We have sinned so greatly minimized. We're trying to see how close we can get to it and play with it. Instead of going the other way. We wink at sin. We don't weep over it. Men are not worried about a holy God and consequences. I mean, the philosophy of the world today is, is outrageous. They think, yeah, listen, there is no, no your morality is up to you. You're free. Just don't hurt anybody. However, to the Jewish person, they were acutely aware of their sin the weight of it, the consequences of it. Let's turn to some scripture. 2 Samuel. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to look at just a couple of verses here of David's mindset. I'm going to go to a few others very quickly. You don't necessarily have to turn there with me. I'm, I'm going to flip through them as, as quick as I can for time's sake here. But I want you to notice a couple of verses. This is when David was numbering the people and sinning against God. Notice David's heart here. Verse 10. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. Remember, he just heard the number. and He realized, what have I done? Now get this. And David said unto the Lord, this is the Lord coming in first, this is David going right before the Lord. He says, I have sinned greatly in that I have, in, in, in that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away thine iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Look at verse 14. And David said unto Gad, I am in great strait. Let us fall now into the, into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of, of man. David, they're sinning against God with the sin of pride by numbering the people. Do you know how many of our, even our independent Baptist churches are so filled with pride when it comes to numbers? You know what the justification I hear for it is? God loves numbers. We have a book called Numbers. I'm just like, what? I'm not kidding. I've heard that preached strong. Are you kidding me? 
The Lord hates pride. Just, it's, it's from Genesis to Revelation. David has sinned against God. Immediately his heart smokes him and he's broken under the weight of it. David immediately confesses it. He understands there's consequences to it. But what David does is interesting, really. He even, he even, even prays for the, for the punishment. We're good with number one and number two, but we usually want, we're not too good with that, that third one. He understood the weight of sin against a holy God. We think it's just saying a few words. I'm sorry. We have no weight attached to it. Look over in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, I'll read it as soon as I get there. You don't necessarily have to turn there. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read just two verses right here. Verse 13. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth, and neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. It goes on. Actually, that's not the verse. Let me go to another text. Or Psalm chapter 38. Psalm chapter 38. That's not the text I wanted in Isaiah. Psalm 38. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. You can see the psalmist under the weight of his sin. David, look at Psalm 51. We sing this. Psalm 51. David has sinned against the Lord. Look, look how the prayer starts. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. You can just see the weight of the sin. It's not just a simple prayer, Lord, forgive me. He understood the weight and the consequences. You want to see it amazing? Look at Leviticus 26. Turn there. I want you to see this. Leviticus 26. Here's what Israel understood. Verse 14. But if you will not hearken unto me, will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul shall abhor my judgment, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will also do unto you. I will ever appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning of you that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it, and I will set my face against you. And you shall be slain before your enemies, uh, um, that they hate you, shall reign over you. You shall flee when none pursueth. And if, you will, and, and if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then will I punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make uh, heaven as iron and your earth as brass. And, and it just goes on and on. They understood and had a sense of the weight and consequences of sin. They knew this sin was not a minor deal before God. It was major how it displeased God. So they were constantly doing two things every day. To deal with the weight and guilt of sin. Confession and sacrifice. 
Confession and sacrifice. Confession and sacrifice. Their life would be obsessed with this. It was a great burden. They would confess. They would offer a sacrifice. And when they would do so, think about this. Well, that felt good. Thank you, Lord. You know what the problem was? The next day. The next day. They sinned again. Another sacrifice. The weight is back. It's there. This was their life day in and day out. Day in and day out. Think of the weight. So now when Paul is saying, listen, this is what the Messiah did. He has provided forgiveness of all sins. Incredible. He leads in verse 39 at how he did that. Go back to our text. Acts chapter 13. So how is this even possible? Oh, this is getting ready to make so much sense to them. They're getting ready to understand perfectly why he died on a cross, suffering to be raised again the third day. Verse 39. And by him, Jesus Christ, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's saying he provided forgiveness and the vehicle with which that is possible is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification means this, basically, to be declared righteous. To make it look as if you have never sinned. So he shows how, how God has made forgiveness possible. He shows that through what happened on the cross, his death, how his death was in fact the sacrifice. That took away, as John the Baptist proclaimed what happened, the sins of the world. Did not he already preach in the same message, John the Baptist? Oh, yes, he did. They understood very well, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. They're hearing an answer for what their heart has been looking for. Why the Messiah came. And before that kingdom would be established, he would deal with the sin issue for all men. He is showing, and we're going to see this, how all that they did before in the sacrifice was just a shadow of what the Messiah would do. He said, listen, it's through justification, you being made perfect, how through the cross of Christ you can be justified and forgiven. He is letting them know he was the sacrifice. A a Jewish mind would have understanding of that immediately. Because it was the sacrifices that they were offering. They understood also the day of atonement besides their own personal sacrifices of what that meant. How that through Christ on the cross, Paul proclaiming, that's the sacrifice. How that on that cross, when He was suffering, He was taking your sin, that you could be justified just like that sacrifice that was just a shadow, that was put in your place because of your sin and had to die because you sinned against God. And through this, I will overlook it. He couldn't take it away. It's not possible. We'll see that in just a second. 
but I'll cover it for now. Him, them, the understanding be coming over through the Holy Spirit that that was just, just a shadow of what the Messiah actually did on the cross. And now they're just, now you can hear them. You can, you can see the thoughts hitting them. Wait, that's the sacrifice to take away all sin. Amazing. Because when he was on that cross, don't forget that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I think it's likely Paul quoted that right to them in Antioch of Pisidia also. How that when He was on that cross God placed upon Him like He did our sacrifice the sin of us all. But now what He does which did not happen before He can take the perfect life of His Son as a man and justify you through it. Amazing. He says how, he says, listen, he points how the law could never do what Christ did. How the law was never meant as a means of salvation like we have believed. The law could corner you, it could convict you, it could condemn you, it could even cover, but it could never cancel sin. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was there to show you what sin is. The law was there to show you, I need salvation. The law could never do what Christ did. Through Christ and what He did on the cross, and by my faith in His death, God no more sees my sin. Know what He sees in me now? The beauty of His Son. I am justified. His own Son righteousness applied to my life. The weight is gone. It's gone. It's gone. My vileness is gone before Him and I have the righteousness of Christ. Now it gets greater than this. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. This is incredible. Verse number 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. He's referring back to the shadow, the sacrifices that were done. But into the second went the high priest alone every year. This is the Day of Atonement. Uh, high priest alone every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the, uh, for the time then present. It's a shadow. He continues. In which we offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did this service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Well, what's the time of Reformation? Look at the next two words. But Christ. <laughs> Get this. Become a high priest. Not only is he the sacrifice, he's the high priest of good things to come, 
by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us all. For the blood and bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, get this, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Look what he's saying here. It's incredible. He said, even so like another like figure, get this, that, that exact word used there, this is interesting. Know what it is? Parable. Same word we use for parable in the Gospels. He's saying what we did was just a shadow. It was just a parable of what was to come. It was the figure. He's saying that's not the answer. That was just the cover. That was just, that was just for right now, just, just waiting for the, that time of reformation, waiting for God, the fullness of time to come, when He would send His Son to be the sacrifice of the entire world. And He made it clear, having once done this. What they have to do every day with their sin, every day, they had the weight of it. Every day, another sacrifice. They would sin again, another sacrifice, each year needing that day of atonement to take place. Now, it's done. With one sacrifice, sin has been taken away and man has has the capability to be justified. Incredible. And as verse 14 says, they can now have a clear conscience, which they never would before. He's showing how this is the road to salvation. And we see, he said, it's for all. It's for Jew and it's for Gentile. You cannot lose. That's why, what I am, isn't it amazing? Those people who actually believe you can lose your salvation. Listen, if that is you, you are so wrong. The very moment I put my faith in Christ, I have been given the righteousness of Christ in my life. When God sees me then, He sees the perfect life of His Son. And all of my sin has been judged on Calvary. You say, well, that means then you can just go live however you want, sin however you want. No, it doesn't. I've been bought with a price. It in no way means that. Any person who says, you know what, I'm saved now. I'm just going to go live like I want to. I can't lose this. They're not even close to conversion. When you, are converted, when you are converted, the Bible is clear. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. There is a desire to serve God. And once genuine conversion takes place, it's true, it's there. That transaction is final. It's final. And as he said in verse 40, it covers all of our sin. And he gives, he gives the road to it too, doesn't he? Faith, belief. Salvation is by faith through grace in Christ. Now notice what he does to finish up here. He gives a petrifying warning. Back in Acts chapter 13, he says this in, the last, in verse 40 and 41 when he finishes his message. He says, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon us which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, you despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Interesting, isn't it? 
He gives this warning. It's astounding and it's terrifying. He is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5, a prophecy that was given at that time. He's using that to provide a great warning to them about Christ and Him being the only way of salvation. How the shadow is past. How if you dismiss this, it will be certain wrath and an eternity in hell. So Paul goes to Habakkuk 1.5. Well, what was going on there? And Habakkuk 1.5 is a prophecy. The prophet was telling them, listen, God is going to send the Chaldeans and he is going to judge us. That magnificent temple is going to be destroyed. That's what's going to take place. It's going to happen. Yet, of course, the, when they heard this from the prophet, they didn't believe it. What? You got it. You think God's going to destroy this temple? Do you understand God is the one who had it designed? Do you understand God is its protector? And the prophet is saying, no, listen, you need to hear me. If we don't repent, judgment is certain, the temple is gone. Yet they would not believe. They wouldn't hear it. They thought there's no way this gets destroyed. Even though it is predicted by a prophet of God, they would not believe it. They thought no way this is going to happen. You despisers and wonder and perish. God will do a work which you shall in no wise believe. Is that not true of our day? Think about this. Now, Israel was wrong. Judah was wrong. God did send the Chaldeans and it was destroyed. Even though they didn't. And God said, you want, you're not going to believe this. Nope. Think of a people today. They hear the preaching. They hear the warning. Yet they despise. They will not believe. They say, God's not going to throw me in hell. Come on, what's wrong with you? God, I am basically a good person. There is no way God's going to throw me in hell. They hear the warnings over and over, but it just leads them to despise and in no way believe. I mean, that's the common thought today. Either there is no hell, or God certainly wouldn't send me to hell. The most dismissed doctrine of the Bible is the judgment of God. People don't want to believe it. That's not going to happen. Just like Israel. He said, just like Israel, just like them at the temple, they thought, surely God's not going to do that. So many people believe that today when it comes to hell. They think, no, listen, God's not going to send me to hell. You are so wrong. If you trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God by rejecting what He did for you, you have an eternal wrath waiting for you. That is the only remedy for your sin. That is it. There is no other way to satisfy the justice of the Holy God than what He made possible through His Son. It's not you by attending church or getting baptized or think you're a good person or you think you have your own thing worked out with God. The only thing that God has done to satisfy His holiness and His justice is what took place with His Son on the cross. His perfect life satisfied the holiness and fulfilled the law. And on that cross... It satisfied justice. And it is through His love and His grace that it is made possible to all men. And if you choose to ignore that, just like Paul said, you face certain wrath. There is no other remedy. It will take place. Do not dismiss the warning of God. Don't fail to see how seriously God does deal with sin. 
we do need to see the weight and consequences of our sin. Listen, what's sad today about our culture is we live in a culture, this is true right now. Think of the damage it's doing to our culture. We live in a culture that actually believes the emotions of guilt and shame are bad. We do. We live in a culture that teaches guilt and shame are, are, those are emotions we need to get rid of. No, they're not. God has given those emotions for a great reason. To drive you to Christ. Do you understand that when you sin, you should feel shame? You want God to give you that emotion. You don't want that emotion to go away in your life. You want guilt and you want shame. So you'll turn to Him. You just want to head down the road to destruction and, and, and just... Listen, the judgment and destruction that God talks about are real. It's not a fairy tale. Even though, as it says, and you will in no wise believe it. But it's certainly coming. It's certainly coming. With heads bowed and eyes closed. It's interesting here. We 